Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast, supported by Zendesk for Startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And in case you haven't heard of Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast every week, we talk about the hot gossip in the ecosystem. We talk about the uh, juicy stories that our reporters have been reporting. And we bring on some guests to share their opinions and insights into what their companies are doing as well. This week, we've got a show full of juicy stories for you, and we'll be joined by our fintech reporter, Amy O'Brien, to discuss the ongoing fallout from the collapse of crypto exchange FTX and whether or not we are in a dot-com bubble moment. We'll also go to our Central and Eastern Europe reporter, Zosia Vanat in Poland, where there's been a big backlash to a decision by judges at the tech conference Slush to choose a Russian-founded startup as the winner of a lucrative award. And as Elizabeth Holmes, who I'm sure you have all heard of, the founder of the bogus blood testing startup Theranos, has been sentenced to 11 years in jail, will be joined by another entrepreneur in the diagnostics space to reflect on how the scandal has affected the sector. And before we get into it, um, we've been off the pod for a week because Amy and I were both offered slush and neglecting our inboxes. Slush, for those of you who don't know it, is basically the Cannes Film Festival of the startup worlds. What did we learn, Amy? What were the hot topics? It was kind of bizarre as you were reflecting, Eleanor. Everyone sort of seemed to be unaware that there's an impending recession and that the companies that weren't gallivanting around at Slush were busy doing heaps of layoffs. I mean, it seemed like the good terms were still rolling at Slush. The investors were holding fancy dinners you could have tiny, tiny, beautifully jude mushrooms or steaks at one person's and you could go to a, another investor's dinner and get some free-flowing champagne. So yeah, it's like people aren't really aware that 2023 is coming and it's going to be tough. But in conversations we were having with people, that is definitely the consensus that more layoffs are coming, funding's still going to be slow, IPOs aren't happening until the end of next year or early 2024. It's, uh, yeah, batting down the hatches. Yeah, I thought that I had some really interesting conversations with people, especially around talent. I think that's some place where a lot of people are are thinking about, you know, how do you communicate to the employees that you haven't laid off? You know, how, how can you motivate them to stick with the team? How can you actually maybe start hiring again and communicate that when you do need to make some key hires once you've laid off? And then also the kind of talent that's being unlocked from big tech companies right now is super interesting as well. Yeah, I was also at some events in Berlin this week and talent was something I was asking lots of people around about. Um, One growth stage investor said that she thinks that most companies have laid off about 20% of people when they have done layoffs and that most of the founders she's speaking to have actually said it's kind of been a good thing. We're now more focused. The team is clearer on what they're working on. Everyone can be a bit more on it interesting not 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 so fun for the people who've been laid off other investors we spoke to think that all the layoffs at the big tech companies is going to be quite a good thing because earlier stage startups can hire those people and that some of that talent might go on to found businesses so in, interesting one to keep an eye on and keep taking the pulse of um you also had an interesting conversation at slush amy tell me who you caught up with for our next pod 
I did. I was talking to Danny Reimer. If you haven't heard of him, he is an OG partner at Index Ventures. He helped set up the London office, then he helped set up the San Francisco office. Now he's back in London. He was the board member of Figma, the design startup that got bought by Adobe in a in a superstar deal earlier this year. So he's one people people like to listen to what he said. And I got half an hour with him to have a chat about things like talent, like layoffs, like crypto like climate tech. So listen out for that next week on the pod. That sounds super rad, Amy, but let's get on with the show. First up, we're joined by Amy O'Brien, our fintech reporter, who's having a little bit of a wild ride at the moment since one of the biggest crypto exchanges, FTX, collapsed earlier this month. Amy, obviously FTX is over in the US, even though you know they're a global company. How is this affecting things in Europe? Yeah, so it's an interesting one because crypto by its very nature, is a sort of global thing. The whole point was that it's decentralized. So whatever happens in the US has quite a big effect on all the European crypto companies. So this week um, over in Europe, one big part of the fallout was we saw Starling Bank, which is one of the biggest neobanks in the UK, ban essentially all transfers and all transactions relating to crypto. So this means that although Starling never actually gave customers the opportunity to trade crypto within its app. If they want to transfer money into a crypto exchange or out of a crypto exchange, they can no longer do that. So this is significant because retail investors are freaked out by the FTX collapse. And some people are saying it's quite wise right now to be cashing out of your crypto investments. So a lot of people are doing that. The problem is now Starling customers, if they cash out from their crypto investments, they can't then put that cash into their bank accounts. So what we'll likely see is those customers just go straight from Starling to other neobanks that still allow those transfers. So for example, Revolut, Monzo, which could be a good for their thing for their customers. Obviously, I think things like the FTX collapse and then also the stuff that's been going on with prices of tech stocks on public markets, right, have had some people kind of wondering if we're in a similar moment to what happened during the dot-com bubble crash in the early 2000s. And that was something that you looked at as well last week. And you talked to some investors who were actually there at that time. What were some of the things that they said were similar to that time? So the similarities seem to center a lot around the FTX collapse. I think that is sort of the real pivotal moment now that we're able to hold up as an example that looks quite a lot like the dot-com crash in 2000. Investors pointed out sort of the lack of corporate governance, the lack of proper financial processes within FTX that are obviously being revealed this week during the trial in US. And that seemed to be scarily familiar for investors that were around in 2000 because a lot of companies that weren't doing the proper processes got funded and then exposed during that crash. The other sort of commonalities in the market that investors pointed out was that, you know, cash was quite easy to come by, especially in 2021. We obviously saw in Europe like the most record-breaking funding levels, but that also listings seemed to be a little bit easier to come by. One investor told me that he thought it was maybe a little bit too lax in terms of who was appropriate for a, an IPO or a SPAC. And that obviously has an effect on the health of the tech stocks long term. But I guess there were also some investors that thought that the market and I guess tech in general was more resilient now and that there were actually some material differences. Talk me through a little bit about that argument. 
Yeah, in terms of how it differs, the main point that investors were making is that, you know, in 2000, a lot of these companies were completely novel and people's use of tech and computers even was much, much lower. Now we've got billions more people worldwide online and tech is ubiquitous and, you know, it's it's ingrained in our lifestyles. So although these tech companies might suffer in the short term, as part of the the wider you know economic environment, these tech stocks most likely will recover. Robin Klein, who is a partner at Local Globe, also pointed out that this time round, these tech companies mostly are solving real challenges in society, whereas a lot of the tech companies that popped up in two thousand weren't really fundamentally building tech that sort of solved problems. So there's more substance to the companies this time around. I mean, I I feel like if you actually drill down into what investors backed, especially in 2021, you might have a good argument to counter that argument, given how much money went into things like quick commerce last year and into, you know, productivity software for the top 5% of white collar workers in the world. But I think another interesting voice that you got into the story and who has a unique view on what's going on was Doug Leone, who is the billionaire general partner of USVC giant Sequoia and also a previously an exuberant backer of FTX. And he was on stage at Slush last week and gave his view on what he thought was happening with the market. Yeah, it was pretty bleak, but I think sort of rings true more to what you just said about quite a lot of what he called easy money flying around uh, last year. But his theory is that actually we might be in a crisis that is worse than both the dot-com crash of 2000 and the financial crash of 2008. Why? He said that the 2001 was sort of centered around tech companies and the 2008 crash was centered around financial markets. Whereas this time around, We have a global crisis. So it incorporates both tech companies, financial markets, all of the macro challenges we've got at the moment. So rising interest rates, decreasing consumer spend, people are running out of money because the cost of living is going up so much, the energy crisis, and also geopolitical challenges. You know, we have a war in Europe that is massively affecting investor confidence and financial markets. But did he have any advice for entrepreneurs? What should founders of today be doing? He was very much advising companies to swallow their egos and take a down round if they can get it. You know, I think Europe has been a little bit behind Silicon Valley and perhaps had a point to prove in the last few years. And then in 2021, we started to see valuations sort of go up to Silicon Valley levels. But his argument was that, you know, if you need the runway, forget about the huge valuation you achieved in 2021 and just raise. And it doesn't matter if it's at a lower valuation because at the end of the day, it's all about survival at the moment. He also, his parting advice was that startups shouldn't waste the recession. And I think what he meant by that was that this is really a time of natural selection within startups. If you can survive and your competitors are failing, then you're going to have a cheaper M&A opportunities, you're going to be able to poach great talent. There are all these opportunities that come out of this crisis that as long as you are sensible managing a runway and perhaps leave your ego at the door, you can actually make the most of. Thank you, Amy. Well, we'll see who survives the wild jungle out there right now. 
doesn't look like some of those quick commerce companies will. And perhaps we will have a more healthy reset of where money goes to in the venture ecosystem. Thank you, Amy. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software and CRM for six months free of charge. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of like-minded founders and CX leaders to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com sifted. So for our second interview today, we're joined by Zosha Vanat in Warsaw, who's been following the fallout from a controversial decision made at the tech event slush which is held annually in Helsinki. There was a prestigious startup pitching award, which had a prize of 1 million euros, was given to a startup called Immigram, which has two Russian founders. It helps people from outside the UK apply for the country's tech visa. So the award was given on Friday late afternoon, and then Zosha set the scene, what happened to, to you and I's WhatsApp DMs and what happened on LinkedIn immediately afterwards? Yeah, they exploded, right? We started to get quite a lot of messages and information and angry, angry emails, not angry at us, just angry in general about the result of this competition. They came at least to my inbox. They came mostly from the Ukrainian startup ecosystem and also the Polish startup ecosystem. So I would say those two were the most active when it comes to the criticism of that. And why were people so upset, Zosha? I mean, I think there's quite a lot of things to unpack here. I mean, there were many layers of this criticism. So the first one, I think, was the most general and like even ideological the ukrainians the poles they claim that there should be no recognition whatsoever for startups with any russian links and immigram it has russian founders as you said amy but it also hires people in russia the founder of of the startup Immigrant's founder, she says that, yes, they do hire people in Russia, but they immediately relocate them to other European countries. But I mean, that explanation sort of wasn't enough for people in Ukraine and in Poland. The second thing is probably about the startup's activity. So it is helping it is essentially helping people from Russia to escape the country after the war started. And obviously, and this is also something that the founder has stressed many times, is that the startup doesn't only operate in Russia. It operates in more than 10 different countries. It also started to operate before February this year. So this is not like the key of its activity, but then the effect is that Russian IT developers can move to the UK to sort of escape the effects of the war while millions of people in Ukraine are without power or they have to be in the country, which is constantly bombed. And, and Zosha, you, you set to work over the weekend, <laughs> much appreciated, spoke to Immigrams, founder Anastasia. Um, we also got in touch, didn't we, with all of the 
investors and we published a piece Sunday evening. And then what happened on Monday? Uh, and then on Monday, Slash decided to revoke the award. So Slash basically said that they stand with Ukraine and they did some extra due diligence and digging. And they asked the investors involved not to proceed with any investment. I mean, at the same time, to be completely fair here, at the same time, Amy Graham's founder said that she's opting out from the competition as well. So we don't really know who was first here. We can only suspect. But yeah, it, it sort of ended that way. Yeah. And it's been it's been really horrible for, for her, hasn't it? The, the founder. I mean, absolutely, on on a personal level, it's hard not to feel sorry for her. She's been in the UK since 2016. She says that she's anti-regime in in Russia and that she's absolutely against the war in Ukraine. There are some people who say that she hasn't manifested it enough, that she has the power as a Russian person in the UK. She has the power to show more of her criticism towards towards the Kremlin. But, I mean, she claims that everything that she has done since February 2022, it was to show her full support with Ukraine. She donated, I mean, the company donated an ambulance for the front line. It also waived the payment for Ukrainian IT developers who would like who would like to use immigrant services. So she's been quite active there. And I mean, since this all outrage started, she she said that she had started to get death threats and a lot of like very critical messages via the social media. And she she even said that she thinks that this whole decision and the whole raw after the decision is xenophobic, that it is purely discriminatory because she's being punished just because of the color of her passport. Yeah, and we've we've had lots of emails from readers about this. And I've been at some events in Berlin this week. And, and lots of people have come up to me and said, you know, been asking about this. It's a really big, big story. And I'd say, 80% of people who've got in touch or who I've spoken to have made this exact point that it's almost uncovered a level of basically sort of racism against Russian people. And and with this particular company, it's more complicated because they aren't completely disconnected from the Russian economy and they, they have these links to talent in Russia. But it's sort of, I guess, exposed that just how complex this issue is and, and how, yeah, lots of people you know, they have their views on working with Russians, whether those Russians are even in Russia or support Putin or not. Yeah, I mean, I think nothing here is completely black and white. And I think that we will be seeing more and more examples of companies like Immigram, where international investors and international communities will sort of have to take a stance. And from what I'm seeing right now is that not everyone here in Europe is on the same page right now when it comes to the approach to Russian business. And it's not only in the startup world, right? Because it's the same with trade, with like immigration laws and everything. But I can see a very clear divide. You said that 80% of people who contacted you sort of felt sorry for the founder. This is definitely not what I felt 
in Poland mm. where people were rather decided that immigrants should never be admitted to the competition in the first place. So we can see a very, very clear divide between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, basically, in the approach to these issues. I think one one thing that should be underlined is that the investors and and organizers of events like Slash, I think they they should really be very, very careful with their due diligence and also with setting the rules beforehand so everyone sort of knows what they should expect. Thank you, Zosha. We will be discussing this further on Sifted. We have some opinion pieces from readers coming along both on the topic of where people come from and how much of a role that should play in whether or not you invest in them and also maybe some some communications lessons learnt from this situation. And finally, we're going to be talking about the fallout from what's been described as Silicon Valley's trial of the century, which saw Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the phony blood testing startup Theranos, sentenced to 11 years behind bars for fraud. So for those who don't know the story, Elizabeth Holmes basically ran a company that she said had developed technology that would revolutionise the medical diagnostics industry by allowing people to test for a wide range of conditions using just a pinprick worth of blood. She managed to convince investors to part with more than $700 million, with the company Theranos being valued at more than $10 billion at its peak before it transpired that the tech was totally fake and there was nothing behind her bold claims. Now, this hasn't only affected Theranos's investors who lost out, but it's also had an impact on other entrepreneurs working in the space. So today we're joined by one of them, Hamish Grierson, who's the founder of an at-home diagnostic startup, Thriver. So, Hamish, start off by telling us a bit about what your company actually does. Hi, Amy. Yes, so uh, Thriver is a uh, UK-based health tech business that is focused on making bio data a powerful part of everyday life. And practically, we enable people to collect samples of their own blood, uh, but also urine and saliva that also uh, reveal powerful insights about what's going on inside your body that are then processed by a laboratory and ultimately you are provided with not just the result but very clear insights as to what that information means for you and we do that direct to customers in a sort of preventative and participative sense but we also power a great number of third-party partners whether that's you know nhs hospitals research in the life sciences industry insurance places like that Cool. And you spoke to us in 2019, which was the year after Theranos shut down. And you said that the story had had zero impact on your consumers, but heavy investor impact and that investors were really worried. So take us back to then, like when this scandal was sort of developing, what impact was it having on your business? I think you said it right. There was no impact in terms of consumers or indeed partners, but every single investor felt like they had to ask the question, you know, so what about Theranos? And actually, to be honest, it was always asked with a smile on their face because it was clear from the get-go that we were just very, very different in terms of uh, the operational model that we were we were rolling out. But the sheer quantities of money involved, I think, precipitated the question, even if they probably already knew the answer. 
And what about now with, I mean, obviously Theranos isn't just a kind of story in the tech world. It's it's like a story everyone's heard of. There are multiple TV shows, podcasts, etc. Is that is that actually kind of net good because people are like aware that this is a this is an industry? Yes, certainly. Uh, I think positive rather than negative. Although on reflection, I think it's also true to say that the pandemic has had a substantially greater impact on the diagnostics industry. Healthcare accelerated as a move to the home and diagnostics will be a core part of that. But that was very much more the pandemic than Theranos. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you said that consumers kind of were always with you, always believing and always on that journey, even when investors did have to ask those awkward questions. I would love to know a little bit about what are you hearing from those consumers and what is the kind of promise that they see in diagnostics? It's actually fairly straightforward. You know, we forget, perhaps because we're immersed in the technology sphere and indeed familiar with stories like Theranos, you know, most people today are still unaware of what's really going on inside their bodies on a you know even semi-regular basis and that is just as important um, if you're trying to stay well as it is to someone who's trying to get well again so actually there is a a very very high trust led relationship that we have with our customers because they fundamentally understand that um, we have their best interests at heart which we absolutely do and the same is true with partners um, so f- yeah, foundationally, they recognize that whilst, I suppose, in ambition, we share some common ground with a business like Theranos that was trying to make biodata a powerful part of everyday life. We just differ materially in the way that we go about both building the business and indeed what the actual technology solution is. And that is unfortunately all we have time for this week. If you want to read more about the stories that Sifted's covering on European Tech and BC, you can go to sifted.eu and follow all of our newsletters there. Also, all of the stories that we mentioned in today's episode are in the podcast description. Subscribe, like. We also have a fintech-specific newsletter that Amy writes, the other Amy writes, in case you want to follow FTX and all the crypto fallout a bit more. And we have a venture capital newsletter written by yours truly and Eleanor. So, I mean, that's amazing. Please, it's got a good gossip section. Sign up to that one. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Hasta la vista.